Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may do, not do wrong, not that we may appear to meet the test, but you may do what is right, though you may seem to have failed. Sorry, though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Let's pray. Father, we are too often prone to approach our salvation like taking an aptitude test, proving somehow uh, that we have what it takes to be your children. But what Paul is talking about here when he calls us to examine ourselves uh, is a paternity test. It's looking for uh, this new part of our nature that you've grafted in. It's looking for the DNA of who you are flowing through our lives, flowing through our veins. And so, Lord, we can, like Paul hopes for the Corinthian church, um, take this test in hope and reorient our lives around the fact that we are your children. I pray that your spirit would make clear your word this morning, that it would speak into our hearts and make clear our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's important here as we look at this passage to remember a couple of things. One... Paul's real goal here in asking them to examine themselves or to test themselves, which he repeats over and over in this passage, his real goal here is ironic in nature. It's to show that if they can claim to be God's children, then that validates his ministry. And if they invalidate his ministry, then it invalidates their relationship with God. Now, we need to hold on to that in a limited way. Just because there are people who come to know Jesus through a particular person's ministry doesn't rubber stamp validate everything that person does, right? We can think of all sorts of horrible stories of scandal that involve televangelists and such who would probably love to point to this verse and go, you know that I'm God's minister because look at all of the fruit. Got to be a little careful there. But in a limited sense, Paul is just trying to get them to recognize that logically, they've backed themselves into a corner here. The second thing we need to realize is that as he's doing this, he has all expectation that they're passing the test. He's not so much wanting them to prove their relationship as as he is wanting them to see the underlying logic of their relationship to Paul. In fact, when he says here, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, the way that's parsed in the Greek implies the answer is they should realize that Jesus Christ is in there. Paul is not questioning their salvation. And he's only asking them to question their salvation to make a point. However, it is worth recognizing that there is a correlation between this call to examine themselves and the fact that there are um, evidences of salvation. Okay? 
And so really, like I said, what Paul is calling for here is a paternity test. Do you really belong to God? Are you truly, truly one of God's children? And he's doing that primarily to show his relationship. In fact, it's a little bit confusing if you forget the context. But notice what he says uh, in verse 6. I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Okay? His point is here uh, that it's either a double positive or a double negative. It's either pass-pass or fail-fail. Okay? And so if they have failed, then maybe they can question Paul's ministry. But if they passed then Paul's ministry is included with it, right? They can't saw off the branch that they're seated on. They can't distance themselves from their father in order to claim their allegiance to their grandfather, okay? But notice what he says next. He says in verse 7, We pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we seem to have failed. What he says here is, we're hoping you'll do the right thing. Now, if you read back in chapter 12, that involves a couple of things. It involves a good deal of change in behavior. The repentance of sexual sin, uh, a, a laying aside of conflict and hostility in the church, uh, a decimating of their arrogance and pride, and also a distancing themselves from these interlopers who have come in and do not have their best interests at heart. That when he says, we hope you will do the right thing, that's the list that he's talking about. But he clarifies here, I don't want you to do the right thing because it makes me look good. He says, I don't want you to do the right thing because it makes me look good. He says, uh, instead, not that we may appear to have met the test. In other words, I don't want you to validate my ministry. That's not what I'm after. He's not trying to hold them up as evidence and saying, do the right thing because everybody's watching and my reputation's on the line. In fact, he pushes it further and he says, but that you may do what is right, though we seem to have failed. He says, even if you do the right thing and it makes us look weaker, it makes us look more distant. Now, what could he possibly mean here? Once again, you need to remember the context, okay? Paul has just warned them that he is about to come and clean house that he has given them multiple opportunities to turn away from these things in the past, but now he feels the need to follow Jesus' commandment to take the full extent of church discipline. What the church in Corinth has been asking for is Paul's credentials, evidence of the power of Christ. And he says, if I have to use the full-blown power of Christ in coming to you in authority, I will do so. But what he's saying now is, I would rather you repent before I get there, even though I don't get to come in power, right? They question that Paul's too weak to bring them discipline, and he says, fine, call me weak, just do the right thing, okay? That's what he means in the last verse there when he says that they can't, uh, can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. He's not going to use his authority to punish them if they've already turned around, Think of a shepherd for a second, right? A shepherd carries a staff, and he might redirect the sheep back onto the path. But a shepherd that just hits the sheep when they're doing the right thing is not a good shepherd, right? That's the idea here, okay? He's saying, I'm not interested in just flexing my authority so everybody realizes I'm an apostle. I would rather you do the right thing just from my suggestion even if it leaves these enemies of Christ to continue to question my authority. Okay. 
So once again, we see Paul's pastoral heart. He really longs for and desires for them to do the right thing for their sake. We've talked about in weeks past how parental that is. Okay. There is always the sense where a child's or a parent's reputation is bound up in their child's behavior. That's always true. But a true parental heart presses beyond that and says, whether I get the credit or not, whether you walk away from this relationship convinced that I screwed you up, if you live a good life, if you do the right thing, that's enough for me. Right? That's the parental heart. It's not invested in these children as evidence of my awesomeness as parent. It's invested in the child for the child's sake. It's love. Okay? The early church fathers had a phrase for this. They called it disinterested love. Meaning love that's not about the consequences of love. See, a lot of times we love people and good things happen. Right? They respond with gratitude. Maybe the love becomes reciprocal. But disinterested love presses beyond that and says, even if there's no visible consequence, this love is worthwhile. Clearly, that's what parental love is. And if you've ever had a teenager, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? That's Paul's heart. But in doing so here, he also points to the DNA of Christianity. Here we're getting to what the Bible often talks about in terms of assurance, okay? John wrote a couple of different books in our Bible. He tells us in the Gospel of John why he wrote his Gospel. He says, there are many other things that Jesus did, but these things I've written down so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing in him you may have life. Okay? So he writes his gospel to non-Christians so that they would know Jesus and come to believe in him and have life. In 1 John, a letter from the Apostle John that we have, he also gives a purpose statement, but it's different. He says this, these things I've written so that you may know you have eternal life. So here he's writing to Christians so that they would be confident of their salvation, so that they would have assurance. Okay. When Paul is asking the church in Corinth to test themselves, he's doing the same thing. And the first thing we need to notice is where the test doesn't focus. Read it again with me in verse 5. Examine yourselves whether to see you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now we're going to talk about three different aspects this morning that I think are important as part of this test, as a part of our assurance as Christians. But first, notice that Paul doesn't test the church in Corinth. He asks them to test themselves. In fact, that's another thing that doesn't get conveyed very well in the English, but is very adamant in the Greek. Every one of these sentences begins with yourselves. Yourselves test. Yourselves see if Jesus Christ is in you. Ex yourselves examine. Okay, that's the emphasis. And so here uh, he's talking about them doing their own due diligence. But what does he say? To see if you're in the faith and whether Christ is in you. He doesn't say, test yourselves to see if you're righteous enough. Test yourself to see if your attendance in church is a spotless record. Test yourself to see if you've fulfilled the right rituals. Have you actually been baptized? That's not where he looks at all. In fact, he looks at a place that is maddening. 
if you're not familiar with the teaching of the Bible. He says, test yourself to see if Christ is really in you. What does that mean? He goes to something that's so significantly subjective. It's not if you have the approval of your church, that you've been added to the role or roster of membership. It's not even, although we'll see this in a second, it's not even dealing with how you live your life. It's a paternity test. He says, ask yourself if God's nature is flowing through your nature. Ask yourself if you are truly a child of God and you have the DNA. Ask yourself whether Christ is in you. And one of the things that's significant about this especially if you're not a Christian this morning, is it gets right to the heart of what we mean when we use the words, I am a Christian. To be a Christian is to be one in whom Jesus resides. Now, I know that's a little mystical. All I want to point out right now is the fact that oftentimes the way we describe Christianity falls short of that. When we take the phrase and say, well, I am one who follows Christ, Like I said about the paternal metaphor, that's a good metaphor, one that Jesus uses himself, but it's not fully complete, okay? If all we needed in life was to follow Jesus, then why did Jesus die? We don't just need a teacher or an instructor or an example or a leader, we need life. This is why Jesus, in his conversation with an elderly religious man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Your life as it stands already falls short. It already puts you outside the kingdom. It's on the wrong path as it is. You are dead in your tracks, Nicodemus. If you're going to have eternal life, then you have to have new life. Basically, one way to think of what God has done in Jesus Christ is that he's grafted into us what we didn't already have. Okay? That's why we talk about salvation being a miracle. Because God does what we cannot do and then enables us through his spirit to continue to do what we cannot do on our own. Isn't that what Jesus says? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, This phrase, Christ is in you, this is the heartbeat of the epistles of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we basically have three different types of writing. We have the four Gospels, which are kind of intentional stories that tell about Jesus' life ministry and then focus in on the last week of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Okay? Then there, the are, there are the epistles, which are letters written from apostles to churches and individuals, okay? That's all the way from Romans uh, through, through um, let's see, what's the last one? Jude, okay? Then there's the book of Acts, which is kind of an early church history. And finally, there's the book of Revelation, which is, side note, epistolatory in nature. It's a letter written to seven churches. But it's more than that. It's, it's a prophetic work. It's an apocalyptic work. It's something significantly different than those other things. But a large portion of the New Testament, almost half, are made up of these letters. Effectively, what they do as a whole is go back to the cross and say, what exactly happened there? And what does it mean for our lives? Okay. 
And so they're basically expositions on this moment in history when the Son of God hung upon a cross and what it means for us. This metaphor of being or of having Christ in us is a primary lens that it uses. And it uses it in relationship with this idea of new birth. New birth okay, so here's what I'm talking about. Consider what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. Just the next book, the next page in your Bibles. Listen to his words in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. So not only did Jesus die on our behalf, Paul pushes it further and he says, I died with Jesus. Then notice what he says next. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, now I live in me. Uh, sorry, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he says, the life that I now live is Christ living in me. Listen to how he puts it to the church in Colossae. So the next book of the Bible is Ephesians, and then Philippians, and then Colossians. Once again, he's talking about the gospel, the good news, the message that we proclaim as Christians, and this is what he says, verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says this is what's mysterious or what was secret or what was unveiled is that God is going to put Christ in the Gentiles, Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. In other words, our entire inheritance is built around this idea of the fact that Christ is in us. Now, we'll come back to this, but I want to hit it while we're here. Notice how he continues in verse 28. Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That sums up this whole child metaphor. What it means to desire to be a spiritual parent in someone else's life is first to see Christ in them through conversion, then becoming a Christian, and then see Christ matured in them for them to grow in Christ. Okay? This is where this idea of childhood, of paternity, comes into the picture. Okay? We need new birth, Jesus tells Nicodemus. We need new life. And that new life is formed, and then it's cultivated until it grows into our identity. Let's just look at one more place. I'm trying to decide which one. Actually, that's good for now. Let's, let's turn back to 2 Corinthians. So what we're talking about here, what we're talking about here uh, is this idea of nature. In fact, Jesus uses this metaphor. He says, figs don't grow on a thorn bush, nor does a grape bush produce thistles. He says, if you look at your life and your life is full of thorns, you can't say, well, I'm actually a grape bush. 
there's a correlation here between the nature of the plant and the fruit of the plant, okay? And we, we get this backwards. What we generally do as human beings is we try to change our na- nature by grafting on or even worse, stapling on fruit or just putting on a grape bush or a grapevine costume, right? And presenting ourselves as a grapevine or really believing in ourselves and saying over and over again, I am a grapevine, But conversion is nothing short of death, burial, and resurrection. It's dying as a thorn bush and being miraculously formed into a grapevine. And that nature leads to fruit. And so here are the three tests that he presents. The first one, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The second one is... uh, Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And then the last one I want you to notice in verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Three different layers of what we talk about in assurance on how do you know that you're really a Christian? How do you know that you're truly a child of God? The first one is doctrinal in nature. When Paul says here, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith, he's using this category, the faith, to talk about what we believe as Christians. He's using it to determine and define the doctrine. Now, why doesn't he call it the doctrines of Christianity? Why does he call it the faith? Because ultimately, doctrine in Christianity is significantly bound up in this idea of faith. Okay? We are saved by faith. We believe in who God proclaims himself to be, and that's what joins us to the nature of Jesus. When we talk about the gospel, that's the good news that we believe, okay? It's what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's facts and revelation that we respond to in faith, in trust, okay? And the first thing that we need to examine in ourselves this morning is do we believe Jesus is who he says he is? Jesus says something really interesting to his disciples in John chapter 20. Every gospel ends with a commissioning of the disciples, and they're all different, okay? So you're probably familiar with the one in Matthew, go into all the worlds and make disciples of all nations, right? But the one in John is different. It says that he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he says, whoever you forgive will be forgiven. Whoever sins you retain will be retained, What could he possibly mean? If you look at the whole teaching of the New Testament, what he's recognizing there is because Jesus has fully and completely and sufficiently paid for the sins of the world, if somebody receives that through faith, we can say with confidence, your sins are forgiven. Okay? And so there's a doctrinal aspect to our insurance. Listen to Paul in the book of Romans chapter 10. Listen to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation for the Christian is by faith alone. 
We're not saved because of our works. We're not saved because of our promise to do better. We're not saved because we've reformed our life. We're saved because we put our trust in Christ. Okay, we believe. But that means taking the facts of who God presents Jesus to be and responding to them in faith. It is inherently doctrinal. Sometimes when Christians today make the mistake of talking about doctrine being unimportant, they miss this significant component. Doctrine doesn't really matter. Just love Jesus. Just follow Jesus. That's all well and true as long as we answer the question who Jesus is. And so Paul roots our salvation here. And so maybe you say, I don't know if I'm a Christian. The first question I would have this morning is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and he was raised from the dead? If you start there and you answer yes, okay, that's primarily where a Christian's assurance is found. I know, I know that we continue to sin. I know that we continue to struggle. I know that if you've been following Jesus long enough, you probably think less of yourself now than you did when things began. I would say that's normal and natural in the way it's supposed to work. We don't have time to get into it this morning. Okay. However, the thing that saves us is not what happens next. Sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, which we'll talk about in a second, is a significant part of what God does through Jesus Christ, but don't put the cart before the horse. When you get to heaven and God says, why are you here? You will say the blood of Jesus Christ and it will be your only answer. Okay? So there's a doctrinal component. This is why we take so much time every week to say, who does the Bible proclaim Jesus to be? Because Jesus is our Redeemer, as we saw in our, our catechism this morning. Jesus is our Savior. And it's in trusting in him that we are saved. Okay, going back to 2 Corinthians, the second thing he says, examine yourself to see if Christ is in you, is not doctrinal, but subjective. Does everybody see that? this transition from here's what I believe in my heart to be true, what I trust in externally, here's the words of Christ that I respond to in faith, here's the doctrine that I confess with my mouth to examine to see whether Christ is in you. Okay. One is objective, the other is subjective. Okay. But what does it mean, examine yourself to see if Christ is in you? Once again, remember here that we're talking about a newness of life. Okay. A newness of life. In other words, have you experienced the tra transformation that comes with the fact of Jesus residing in you, of becoming the temple of God? One of the things that changes, according to John's epistle, is our desires. We want things we've never wanted before, and we no longer want things we used to want. Another thing that John points to is a longing to know God better through the study of his word. Okay. But here's one that I wanted to draw your attention to because I think it really gets to the heart of this. In the book of Romans, in chapter 8, Paul is talking about this reality of Christ in us, talking about uh, the fact that the spirit has come to reside in us. And he says, this is the evidence that we're the children of God. 
that we walk in the Spirit, right? But this is what I wanted to draw your attention to. Here's something that Paul says is happening inside every Christian. He says this. Here's what I want. Here we go, chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you hear how it's the same thing? It's evidence that we are God's children. It's a paternity test. It's, it's um, subjective. And he says, it's happening inside us. When, the, when Paul talks about Christ being in us, what he means is that God has sent the spirit of Christ to dwell in us as his temple. Okay? There's so many pieces to this, so many facets. What we're doing this morning is literally reviewing the entire New Testament. Okay? Uh, but how does that play out? Notice how it doesn't play out. Many of us, what we want for an affirmation to know that we're really Christians, what we look for in assurance is a voice of God saying, you truly belong to me. Some sort of revelation or experience, right? When I say subjective, I do mean experiential, but most of us want something to happen. Mountains to move, voices from heaven. What Paul says here is not even that God puts his spirit in us saying, you are my child. Did you notice that? Read it with me again. Verse uh, 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Not who cries within us, you are my child. The evidence that Paul is talking about here, one of the things that we can examine is do we long for God like a father? Do we cry out to God? Okay. That's new. The Bible says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It says that we were blind to the presence of God, that our necks were stubborn and hardened, that our ears were closed. Okay. And when we find a longing in our hearts for God, not for his heaven, not for the good things he might give us, when he's not just a means to the ends of that we actually worship, but he is the end. That is one of these things. Do you long for God? Do you desire to know him better? Do you find yourself like when you were a child reaching for your parent, internally reaching out for God? That's what we're talking about. There's this subjective component. Examine yourselves. Do you really find new life in yourself? Now, I want to be clear once again. All of us, because we still live in the flesh, because we still have a sin nature, even if God has grafted in his own nature to combat that, will continue to see death play out in our life. We'll continue to see places where sin still holds power, Places where sin rises up, where we give in to temptation, all of these things. That's not the question we're asking this morning. The metric Paul gives is, do you, is not, do you still sin? Because they clearly do. This is the church in Corinth, remember? 
But he believes they're going to pass this test. Why? Because despite of the fact that their life is full of death, it's also full of something else, life. There are sins that they've walked away from. There are places where they've become more like Jesus. In fact, that gets us to the the second part. Remember I told you that a parental heart first wants to see this life grafted into them? Okay. If Christianity is a disease, then we want everyone to catch it. Okay. We want it to become part of them. If you see it in this metaphor of DNA, we want to graft in this new DNA that brings about the empowerment and the ability to live. Okay. But on top of that, there's also this concept of maturity, of growing in that. Okay. And so all of that to say that if you're a brand new Christian, you have a long way to go. And if you've been a Christian 30 years, you have a long way to go. Okay. But there should be progress. And that brings us to the last piece. The final thing Paul says in 2 Corinthians He says, my prayer for you is that you would not do wrong. In other words, let me paraphrase in the context. My prayer for you is that you would repent. My prayer for you is that you would leave behind these old things. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians. He says, no longer behave as the non-Christians do, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, because that's not the way you learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Christ and have learned in him. And then he says this, to put off the old man and to put on the new. Okay? That's a summary of our daily life in Christianity, is to set aside who we were and to live out our new identity. Okay? This is Paul's heart for the church in Galatia. We already saw that he looks at his own life and he says, he says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen to the heart that he has for them here in Galatians 4. See if I can find where I draw. Yes, okay, verse 19. My little children. Do you hear how he feels? Not just little children. He doesn't just want to say, look, you need to do better. My little children. What does he say? For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What is his pastoral heart? That they would grow more like Christ, that Christ would grow to be more of their identity. That's what he said in Colossae, remember? He, first he says, he says um, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and we preach this, warning everyone and teaching everyone to present everyone what? Mature in Christ. Okay. And so Paul's desire for the church in Corinth is that they would do no wrong, that they would grow in this relationship, that they would more and more, day by day, turn away from sin, the flesh, their old identity, and turn towards their new identity in Christ. In fact, this is the culmination of Paul's Holy Spirit talk in Romans 8. He says, if anyone is led by the Spirit of God... He is a child of God. Where is it that the Spirit is leading? 
Paul tells us this in Romans 8. He says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is God's will for your life? Do you become daily and progressively and finally more like Jesus? Okay. And so this last category, the first is doctrinal in nature. Do you know who Jesus is and do you believe it? If so, the Bible says faith comes by hearing the word of God and it's that faith that saves us. Okay. Second, do you experience the new life that God promises in Jesus Christ as a response to that faith? And then third, and this is important, are you growing in it? Are you living it out? And remember the context here. Paul, this is the one place where Paul doesn't say it's sufficient to test yourself. He's saying, I'm coming. I'm going to see with my own eyes, and I'm going to speak the truth to you. Remember, this is in the context of a warning about church discipline. This is in the context of a confrontation that says your life doesn't line up with your profession. Okay? Now, I want to be really clear here because I think it's important. We need to notice the order here. Who is it that Christians hold accountable for their life behavior? Christians. Paul, dealing with church discipline all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, says, when I wrote you not to associate with evil people, I was not talking about the world, but people who profess the name of Christ and don't live it out, okay? And so when we come and we challenge one another in sin, the Bible says that's an essential part of our sanctification, that just like a child growing in maturity involves a parent speaking truth into their life and even sometimes discipline, so also we need that in the church. There are places where God uh, will show you your sin through the mouths of others, and that's according to the plan. Okay. But, but if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we have no behavioral standard for you. Sometimes we're going to express our concern because we believe that sin always damages. But your being with us this morning, if you're just here to learn about Jesus, we couldn't live the life God calls us to live without Jesus. We don't expect you to either. That has to be our attitude as Christians. What we want for them is not to look more like Jesus without Jesus being in them. We just want Jesus to be in them. We want them to know who Jesus is and believe it, and by believing it, have life in his name. It's Gospel of John, not 1 John. Okay? But if you profess to be a Christian, we have a God-given role in one another's lives to test that by your lifestyle. And it's for the same reason. It has to do with the holiness of God. Okay? For non-Christians, the holiness of God is so significant and we fall so short that we have no standard for you. We just want you to receive the gift that God has offered. Righteousness that you don't deserve. Alien righteousness that God implants in you. But if you have that implantation, then we want to see it in action. 
When Paul says here that he only works towards the truth and not against it, this explains the whole concept of why we confront one another in sin. It's because if you're not really a child of God, what a horrible thing to not know. And so we challenge one another and we draw these things to light and we say, wake up. Do you not care? Like I said last week, church discipline is not execution. It's a coroner looking for signs of life. That's Paul's heart here. He says, I believe you're going to pass the test. And that doesn't just mean that you'll look at yourself and say, yes, I'm a Christian. It also means repentance. Just a side note, repentance is the only standard of growth in the Christian life. Everything else will fill you with pride and mislead you. Don't ask, how long has it been since I screwed up? Ask, when was the last time I repented? Okay. That's how we become Christians. In fact, let me go back. If you're not a Christian this morning, yes, we have no standard of belief for you, but you should recognize that Jesus says there's a cost in following him. Okay? And so choosing Jesus means forsaking a whole lot of things. But it also means a change in desires. It also means an enabling to do those things. But there's no getting around the cost. We have to watch out for what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It just says, Jesus' is forgiveness, that's all there is to it. Just receive him, and that's the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's actually only the beginning. And so when we look at our own lives, we need to examine ourselves and ask these three questions. And I'm not using these because I'm worried about many of you. In fact, I hope that you find signs of life and encouragement. But this is what it means. It means, do you believe the Bible, or do you believe in the Jesus that the Bible presents? Second, do you find that miraculous divine nature that Peter talks about working in you, Christ in you? Are you changed? Are you transformed? Are you changing? And third, is that working out into your life, and is there anything that's incongruent with that? And with that last category especially, a sign of life there. You want assurance when you're walking in sin? Assurance is repentance. But our heart for one another should be built around this. If God's great plan for humanity is that they would be conformed in the image of Christ, what should our desire be? Okay, too often our hearts and ministry for other people get limited down to smaller things. This is God's great goal. Let's pray.